Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, I have a significant housekeeping to do, but I think that will be a standalone podcast. So look for that next. Today I'm speaking with David Brooks. David is a contributing writer at The Atlantic and also a columnist for The New York Times and a commentator on PBS's NewsHour. He's the author of several books, including The Second Mountain and The Road to Character, as well as the forthcoming book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. David has been awarded more than 30 honorary degrees. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he teaches at Yale University. David and I spoke about the state of American democracy and the liberal world order. We discussed the weaknesses of moral individualism, the loss of social trust, the dangers of identity politics, what happened to the Republican Party, the hatred of elites, the 2024 presidential election, the Trump indictments, the war in Ukraine, moral force, the roots of liberalism, the various flavors of Trump support at this point, the Biden presidency, Hunter Biden's laptop, Biden's prospects in 2024, Nikki Haley, economic inequality, the enduring problems with meritocracy, the state of media and social media, the lure of conspiracy thinking, the politics of recognition, our handling of the COVID pandemic, our difficulties acknowledging uncertainty, our withdrawal from Afghanistan, the limits of American power, and other topics. And now I bring you David Brooks. I am here with David Brooks. David, thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be back with you. So uh, you've been on the podcast before, and um, I am certainly a fan of yours and, and read your work as it appears in the New York Times and the Atlantic. Um, that's uh, Perhaps you appear somewhere else, and I'm, I'm not aware of it, but uh, maybe you can just uh, summarize how you view your career as a writer and a, a journalist at this point. What, what kinds of things have you focused on, and what are you doing? of late? Well, uh, to start at the beginning, when I was seven, uh, I read a book <laughs> called Paddington the Bear, and I decided I want to become a writer. And I've been writing pretty much every day, except maybe 200 in the intervening 50 years. And wow. My joke is, in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She dated some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. Uh, so those were my values, that uh, you should date the better writer. Nice. But those were not her values, apparently. Um, so, you know, I I worked for the college newspaper, the University of Chicago, and then I was a police reporter on the south side of Chicago, and I got a lucky break. We can talk about when William F. Buckley spotted me and gave a speech to the student body of Chicago, and he said, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. Hmm. Uh, and I sadly wasn't in the audience. I was actually debating Milton Friedman on national TV. And if your listeners want to oh, watch my first that. TV yeah. appearance, it's, yeah. Nice. A 21-year-old me getting slaughtered by Friedman. So is that on YouTube? That, that's searchable? Yeah, if, it's, if, you, yeah. if you YouTube David Brooks, Milton Friedman, you will see uh, me in a big afro and I these 1980s that, yeah. glasses that look like they're on loan from Mount Palomar Lunar Observatory. Uh-huh. And then I, I toured through the sort of conservative world, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the Weekly Standard, Washington Times, eventually landing in 2003. And my joke is I was hired as the conservative columnist at the New York Times, a job I likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. 
Mm-hmm. And the one constant I would say, just to get us up to the present, is that I've always been a fan of a period of nonfiction between 1955 and 1965, when you had a series of writers who were a little above journalism, but not quite as specialized as academics. And so they would be people like Jane Jacobs and Irving Crystal or Daniel Bell or Irving Howe, Richard John Newhouse, Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm. and Hannah Arendt. Uh, and so they, they took on big subjects. Reinhold Niebuhr took on, he wrote a book called The Age and, and Destiny of Man, which covers a lot of ground. Um, so I, I always wanted to be in that lane, like slightly off the news from a, a regular journalist, but not quite specialized like an academic. And I've, I've done these big pieces where I attempt to just figure out what's the temper of our times. Mm. And how would you describe your politics at this point? My politics are weirdly unchanged. I I have two heroes. Uh, One is Edmund Burke, and Burke is a believer in epistemological modesty. The world is complicated, so we should Mm -hmm. be really complicated in what we can know and change, and when we do it, should be constant but incremental. And then my other hero is Alexander Hamilton, who was a Puerto Rican hip-hop star from the Heights. Mm -hmm. Um, He was was a—he, for me, is—you know, I was raised by my grandfather, really, an immigrant, and so I have that immigrant mentality that government should be energetic on behalf of people so they can rise and succeed in America. And so Hamilton's really starts this tradition, the Whigs in the 19th century, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, continue it, Abraham Lincoln, uh, with the, the land-grant college act and the homestead legislation. And I think the Whig tradition really intellectually goes up to Teddy Roosevelt and maybe John McCain, but it's a tradition that dies out, but it's, mm-hmm. there are six of us left. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to be a Whig. And uh, there was a phrase I ran across from Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher, who said, I'm happy to be at the leftward edge, or the rightward edge of the leftward tendency. And these days, I'm so repulsed by the Republican Party. I guess I'm supporting and rooting for the Democrats, but I'm on the rightward edge of the Democrats. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I, I've often, I, I've always considered you right of me. I mean, I, I certainly have never been tempted to be a Republican. Um, and I don't think I've ever voted for a Republican, but um, you know, I, I have for many years now made common cause with Republicans who see the re- recent events on the right uh, and on the left uh, more or less as I do. So I, you know, y- yourself and David French and Brad Stevens and Jonah Goldberg and others who saw in Trump precisely what I saw in Trump, and and we have never gone quiet on that topic. So I want to I want to have a conversation with you that is perhaps a little more narrowly focused than the age and destiny of man, but not by too much because I want to talk about the state of American democracy and the liberal world order, really. Uh, and I want I want to start with an essay you wrote back in 2020, which was you, you published it right before the presidential election in the Atlantic. Uh, the title is "America is Having a Moral Convulsion," and uh, it's really it's a wonderful and quite depressing piece. And I just want to revisit it because I I stumbled upon it I don't know, a few months ago and and was wondering how your thinking about our situation may have evolved since. Uh, whether this is the, the intervening three years have just confirmed all of your worst fears or magnified them, or if anything has changed. But in that piece, you focus on the breakdown of social trust, mainly in America, and you argue that our trust in our institutions and in one another 
was in something like a death spiral, I mean, really just a catastrophic decline. And um, you paint this very vivid picture of lost promise, where you just the, what seemed to be the the high watermarks of capitalism and democracy and pluralism and diversity and globalization at the end of the 20th century were followed by this more or less unraveling of all of that, you know, and and the, the apparent promise of all of that. And it, just to get you started, to remind you of where your, your head was three years ago, uh, I just want to read a short paragraph, which um, can serve as a nice starting point here. It's, uh, this is you. It all looks naive now. We were naive about what the globalized economy would do to the working class, naive to think the internet would bring us together, naive to think the global mixing of people would breed harmony, naive to think the privileged wouldn't pull up the ladders of opportunity behind them. We didn't predict that oligarchs would steal entire nations, or that demagogues from Turkey to the U.S. would ignite ethnic hatreds. We didn't see that a hyper-competitive global meritocracy would effectively turn all of childhood into elite travel sports, where a few privileged performers get to play and everyone else gets left behind. Uh, and so that, that ch- touches on so much that concerns me about our current moment, both uh, domestically and, and for its implications for maintaining what many of us uh, perhaps naively have thought about as the rules-based international order. So just uh, I give you that as a starting point. Tell me, how do, how do things look to you three years on? Yeah. Let me go suck on the gas pipe there. I know yeah. that is depressing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, one of the things I was trying to do in that piece is just investigate the psychology of distrust. It, we had entered and still are in a world with high distrust. And so what does that do to people? And it, one of the things that distrustful people try to make themselves invulnerable, they try to armor up, they want to feel safe, they see threats that aren't there. In a period of distrust, you get surges of populism, people who feel betrayed. And so I think that's all true. But, but I think if I could step back, that piece poured out of a moment I think a lot of us lived through. I lived through it very materially. I was with the Wall Street Journal and I was covering, I was a foreign correspondent in the 90s. And so I covered the end of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, the end of apartheid in South Africa, the Maslow peace process, the Maastricht process of the European unification. And this was all good news. And so it was a period of convergence when people seemed to be coming together when barriers seemed to be falling. And at the end of my time in Europe, I covered an event of the Yugoslav Civil War. And in the, it turns out that that little event with authoritarian strongmanism and ethnic conflict turned out to be the more important than all the other stuff I covered in predicting what would happen over the next 25 years. And so the end of convergence ended, and we entered it 25 years of really ethnic conflict, authoritarian rising, and really a closing up, a, a disassociation across all sorts of societies. And the thing that troubled me the most, and still troubles me the most, is the freakish breakdown in social and relational fabric of American society, the, the rise of depression, and, and suicide is well known, but the number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by four times mm. the number of people who say that they have broken with a member of their immediate family has risen. There's been a third increase in the number of people living without a romantic partner. And if you ask the number of people who, give, who rate themselves in the lowest happiness category is up substantially. If you ask high school kids, 
Do you feel persistently hopeless and depressed? Well, that's risen from like 20% to 45%. So we are still in the middle of some sort of societal, emotional, and relational crisis. Now, there are two things to be said to cheer us all up. One is, and this has been a surprise to me, it is a pillar of the literature on trust that low-trust societies are poor societies, that if you can't trust the people around you, you can't do business deals. And yet, I would have to say American capitalism has sailed on in pretty nice fashion and picking up steam. Uh, Europe and America were roughly even in GDP per capita back when I was over in Europe. And now the U.S. is just crushing Europe. Mm -hmm. we, our, our, our economy is just way stronger. We're number one in investment. We're number one in innovation, one or two, along with Switzerland. And so the American economy has gone from strength to strength. As we speak, we're seeing a big turnaround in the fate of nations, if you want to put it that way. China, which seemed to be expanding and rising and seemed to be the rising power, has hit hard times and seems to be struggling, to say the least, economically. Meanwhile, if you go to Ohio, you've got gigantic multi-billion dollar investments from Amazon, from Google, from Intel. And so we're seeing a renaissance, especially the American heartland, the American Midwest. And so I'm a little surprised the American economy has really surged at a time, even despite the low social trust. And so that's one thing that's making me feel a little better. Maybe it's not ruin all around. Mm. Well, I want to talk about politics. And um, there are many threads here. There's this, you know, what we might call meritocracy and its discontents, the problem of trust, and it's something you make clear in several of your, of your essays, is linked to the problem of or being unable to have a fact-based discussion about more or less anything of substance now. So when you look at what happened during the, the pandemic, what we witnessed was a, a more or less total failure to come together as a, as a society because we simply couldn't have a convergence of belief about what was actually happening and much less what, what to do about it. Uh, so there was a, a, a total lack of cultural cohesion, and I think we're still living with the aftermath of that and the attendant cynicism and political populism that just, it just seems to be further fracturing our society. So the, the, the trust in institutions piece is enormous and perhaps uh, mirrored by a failure of, of interpersonal trust. Um, and obviously there's a, a piece of around um, diversity and identity politics that seems to argue that trust can further break down here. I guess, I mean, just speaking personally, I, I noticed that this is, I feel very late to some of these topics because I, I mean, when I look back on my professional output, it really has been almost entirely an argument for what I think of as enlightened individualism. And much of your work, I think, suggests the obvious limits of individualism. And when, when I say enlightened inv individualism, I, I, I mean enlightened really in both senses of that term. I, I'm thinking of the Western birth of, of science and, and secular rationality. I'm also thinking of the more esoteric Eastern spiritual sense of enlightened, I mean, in the sense that suggests contemplation and, and self-transcendence. So I, I've been arguing for you know, science and scientific skepticism in the culture wars against organized religion for many years. And, I, and simultaneously, I've been championing the virtues of meditation and philosophical reflection and personal ethics. 
Uh, and, I, and I do think that all of these things are indispensable for living a good life, but I'm actually humbled by the degree to which all of our independent efforts to live well and to think clearly just can still totally fail to cohere at the level of society at large. Right? So, so it's, it's really, it wasn't until Trump and the pandemic that I, I believe I fully recognized how much we need institutions and political norms and economic incentives that make us better collectively, right? That make it much easier for selfish people to behave well rather than requiring, you know, sainthood for someone to act, you know, halfway decently. And, and so much of the time I see that we're, we've built systems that are incentivizing all the wrong things. And it, you really do have to be basically, uh, you know, a, a saint to behave well in certain contexts. And, you know, what, what you see most of the time is, is quite normal people psychologically behaving in ways that make them indistinguishable from sociopaths. And I, you know, I, I think social media is the primary example of this. And, and so, you know, I deleted my Twitter account because it just seemed that, you know, staring, you know, hour by hour into that funhouse mirror was not only giving me a false sense of how grotesque my neighbors were, but it was actually making me a kind of grotesque. And so, I, you know, I just had to pull the plug on it. So anyway, I just, this is just to lob a softball to you, but I, I, realize, I, I see your wheelhouse as perhaps among several others as being one where you have recognized that we not only need lives of personal integrity, we need cultural contexts and institutions and norms and systems that support those lives and enable them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a liberal too. Um, but I guess I would say, you know, I grew up in New York and Greenwich Village in the 60s, and I was surrounded by what you might call moral individualism or, or, or social individualism. You should do what you want. And I imbibed that, and I celebrate a lot of the changes that came out. But I think in the ensuing 80 years, we've overshot the mark, and we became too individualistic. And there were some weaknesses there. One, the illusion that if we all do our own selfish thing, everything will work out for society. And to me, that didn't work out. I mean, we, we can all do our selfish thing and no invisible hand will create a healthy society. The second thing, and, and here's the, the conservative in me coming out, and that would be that reason and individualism and individual choice are built on institutions that precede choice. So the liberal order we treasure is built on an order that is not liberal. And so there are certain attachments we have to our family, to our town, to our nation, to our creeds, which are not really chosen. They're just, we absorb them in the culture around us. And our commitments to those things like family, nation, community are total. And so those things are not something we choose. Those things are institutions that form us. And so we, you know, we want to live in moral ecologies in which it's just easier to be good. And so let me give you a, a concrete example. So like, I don't know, 20 years ago, I got a job on PBS to be a pundit for Jim Lehrer uh, on the news hour. And every time I said something crass and sort of self-indulgent on the air, I would see Lehrer's mouth downturn. And every time I said something he thought was good, I would see his eyes crinkle in pleasure. So for 10 years, he never had to say anything. I just tried to chase the mouth, the <laughs> eyes wrinkle and try to avoid the mouth downturn. And so in that way, he set standards of behavior 
that I didn't really consciously think about all that much, but in which it was easier to be good. And so the point is, none of us are separable individuals. We're all very porous, deeply influenced by the world around us. And so we need that world around us to have a shared ecology that'll make it easier for us to be good. And if we don't have that, we're going we're gonna to defer to our default selfishness. Mm. So you wrote this, this essay that we, I referenced at the top here before the election in 2020, and obviously before January 6th. What has your sense been, I mean, the, you know, the, the economic trends notwithstanding, what, what is your sense now of the political landscape? How durable the, the, the populism of the, of the right and left are, and you know, how much Trumpism may exceed the problem of Trump himself? Um, wh- where are we politically as a nation? Trump was obviously the epitome of distrust, a distrustful person who was both a symptom of our larger distrust and an accelerant, uh, making us all distrustful and making us look at one another. I guess in the years since, a couple things have happened. The first is I've come to see that the problem is not just politics, but our particular kind of politics we practice now. In a healthy society, people practice the politics of distribution, like How much should we raise taxes? Where should we spend our money? And that seems to be a healthy politics. We don't practice that kind of politics by and large, or at least Donald Trump doesn't. We practice the politics of recognition. We want our political leaders to humiliate the other side and affirm us. Ours is a politics looking for identity. We're looking to be admired by ourselves. And that is asking too much of politics than it is required, than is possible of delivering. Mm. And so, you know, we. If you're naked and alone, you feel morally lost. And so you seek politics because it seems to offer you a moral landscape. There are us good guys over here and those bad guys over there. It seems to offer you community. We all watch Newsmax together and we hate the other side. It seems to offer you moral action. You don't have to sit with a widow or feed the hungry. You just have to feel properly indignant at the outrages of the other side. But in all these ways, politics is failing to deliver what you're seeking. You're not really, it's not really a moral landscape. In real life, complicated life, morality is right down the middle of every human heart. We're all capable of good and, and bad. In real life, community is not just watching Newsmax together. It's, it's, you know, building a town or doing whatever you want to do together. In real life, community is, you know, meeting people, befriending people. It's not just be joining some tri- this or that tribe. So in my view, we've become over-politicized and under-moralized. We've turned everything into politics, whether it's late-night comedy shows or church or sporting events. And we've become terribly over-politicized because people have gone to politics seeking the moral purpose that their moral life uh, is not delivering for them. What explains the apparent inversion of moral as everything that has occurred in the Republican Party? I mean, how, how did we get to a Republican Party that would champion a, this kind of new isolationism and celebrate a figure like Putin, not care that Trump as a sitting president wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, really not see any flaws in him as a, a moral actor, not, not care at, at all about the character of the person they were putting in the Oval Office. I mean, it just seems like all the toggle switches got flipped, at least with respect to how, they, how Republicans thought of themselves in election cycles, you know, 
prior to 2016. What do you think explains that? And, and do you see any sign that it could reset in, in the near term? Yeah, I would guess I would tell a lot of different stories, some of which contradict each other, but all of which I think are true. <laughs> and so, you know, that it's part of the story, I think, is that there was a hidden, not so hidden racist element on the right uh, that uh, surfaced. Though I have to say, as somebody who inhabited a certain kind of conservative precinct for much of my life, I never heard direct racism even in private. But do you think, just first, I, I, I find it hard to believe that that would explain the embrace of Trump and Trumpism by you know, the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal, right? Like, how did how did the, how did you know Brett Stevens get you know spit out of the Wall Street Journal? In your view, yeah, I guess I would tell another. The, the main story I would tell is a story that is not particularly flattering to people like me, which is roundabout. 1950 to 1960, we shifted the definition of merit in this society. And so the median SAT score of somebody at Harvard rose from like, from say 550 to 680. And we created a new version of the meritocracy basically around cognition and your ability to be pleasing to teachers between the ages of 15 and 18. And this meritocratic class uh, rose up in universities all across the country, married each other invested massively in their kids. Those kids got into the same elite schools that the meritocrats went to. They also married each other. They invested massively in their kids. Those kids went to the same schools. They went to live in a few places with booming economies like San Francisco, Austin, Denver, Washington, New York. And so basically, and this happened in the U.S., but it happened across the Western world, which is why populism is a Western thing, not an American thing. And so 20% of the population garnered an immense amount of wealth, but more important, immense amount of cultural power. So those of us in my class more or less control the media, or at least the mainstream media, Hollywood, the universities. And so every system has, every society has a recognition order. Who's going to confer recognition and approval on people? And my little class controls it in this country. And so a lot of people in the society, and also in France, and in Hungary, and Italy, and Sweden, and a lot of other places, said that group of meritocratic elites just has too much power. They have too much economic, cultural, political, and social power. And we hate them. And so we're going to take them down. And Donald Trump is our bastard to take those people down. And those people hate Donald Trump. And therefore, whatever Trump does, I'm going to be behind. And the one thing that continues to shock me to this day is that Christians are supposed to believe in a lot of things, but one of them is that the ends do not justify the means. And yet, the entire white evangelical world, and now I hear this every day from white evangelicals, that he's he's a bastard, but he's our bastards, the ends justify the means. And so, that continues to shock me on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, so you you echo... I think you've you've written a book more or less on that topic, but I'm also hearing what Charles Murray was saying in his book Coming Apart about the the, the segregation of economic rewards that have gone to a certain class of people that have uh, really defined success in terms of a, a specific cognitive work and and virtues, and then there's the the econ- the attendant econ- economic inequality of all of that. Where does that leave us currently? Politically, I mean, we're, we're both watching the 
Republican primary season begin to unfold, or at least the campaigns aimed at primaries uh, next year. Do you see any of this resetting, or you're just expecting Trump to be the candidate or some Trumpist impersonator to be in his place? Well, I guess I recall a time when Ron DeSantis was only behind by four percentage points Mm -hmm. to Trump. And there was a time that a crucial question to me was, they asked Republicans, are you primarily a supporter of Donald Trump, or are you primarily a supporter of the Republican Party? And during the Trump presidency, most people said Donald Trump. But after the defeats of 2020, the defeats of 2022, the majority of Republicans said, no, I'm a disciple of the Republican Party. And so that gave me great hope that Republicans would go for somebody else. And I think that hope was dashed on the day the FBI found the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And on that day, and then in the ensuing indictments, Mm. you know, Donald Trump's support has risen and risen and risen. Because again, if you go back to the central narrative, that we're the Americans who are fighting against the educated elites, then this allows Trump to play that narrative. And I have faith in the justice system. I think they're doing the right thing. But a lot of people out there do not have any faith in that system and do not think they're doing the right thing. So a bunch of lawyers in Washington and Atlanta and New York going after Donald Trump is just underlining the key narrative. And so Trump looks in a a very dominant position to me right now. Mm. I guess just to return to the to my initial question for a second, I, many of these educated elites obviously are supporters of Trump or supporters of the populist unrest uh, that props him up. I mean, you see, have somebody campaigning like Vivek Ramaswamy, right? He's he's the quintessence of an educated elite, and yet he's mouthing all of the pablum that Trumpism would. Uh, require of him. Do you view that as a purely cynical and opportunistic style of politics? Or do you, do you think that, and, and I guess this would, this opprobrium would extend to like the, the Wall Street editorial board in 2016. Is it pure cynicism and opportunism? Or is, do you think that many of these so-called elites have managed to squint their eyes in such a way as to actually agree with Trump and not see a problem with his style of politics. Yeah, for Ramaswamy, I think he looked at the world and said, hey, the uh, narcissistic hucksterism is in vogue. (laughs) My ship has come in. Mm. (laughs) This is my great skill. For somebody like Tucker Carlson, who I knew, we worked together for nine years at the Workly Standard. I think there's excitement, the desire to be relevant, the desire to be on the thrill, uh, and a fair degree of cynicism. For people like Rudy Giuliani, I do think it is pure desire to remain relevant. For other people, I think there are a whole variety of rationalizations. And I will say, I I periodically go on reporting trips where I interview the Republican donor class. Uh, I just want to know what they're thinking, because they've been interesting. And I would say in 2016, the vast majority of the normal GOP rich guy donors were anti-Trump. And then they ended up voting for him because they couldn't vote them for Hillary. And then in 2017, they were still sort of against him. And then as you interviewed them by 2018 and 2019, suddenly they were all sort of for him. And it was a reminder, the power of team spirit is super strong in American life. Mm. And that if your enemies are attacking a guy who's sort of on your team, and he happens to be cutting your taxes and 
putting together a reasonably strong economy, well, then it becomes pretty easy for you to slide over and suddenly you're not anti-Trump. You're just kind of pro-Trump because you want to be part of the team. I have to say now, when I look at the Republican donors, they're back to being anti-Trump and they're looking for an alternative, but they can't find one. But I do think there is this mentality on, there is just a binary mentality to American politics. So I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page for nine years. And I think they don't want to be seen as totally pro-Trump, but if every day they can wake up and um, critique, you know, Rachel Maddow, mm. well, that's something that feels kind of natural. What, if anything, changes when you, when you focus this question through the lens of the war in Ukraine, right? You, you have many, many Republicans seemingly sincerely espousing the belief that we have absolutely no business selling arms to Ukraine. We're culpable for Putin's invasion because we so recklessly provoked him with talk of uh, extending uh, NATO, you know, and, and it's, so it was just pure, a pure history of provocation and failed diplomacy on our part that forced Putin's hand. He did what any rational actor would do in invading Ukraine. Uh, there's no interesting moral asymmetry there. You know, you, you know any talk of a, a democracy that was a sovereign demo democracy that was invaded by a belligerent who we should support uh, under a rules-based international order just invites, you know, a, a cynical guffaw from these people. Uh, we, you know, with echoes of Trump saying, do you think our hands are so clean? In, I think in, in that context, he was talking about uh, MBS and the murder of um, Khashoggi. But I, mean, I, I got to think that many, if not most of, of these Republicans who are deeply skeptical of, of, of any argument that we should be supporting Ukraine uh, have come to that, at least imagine they've come to that belief, not calculating some weird political self-interest, but actually just feeling that they've had some kind of epiphany about the status of America on the world stage and the wisdom of retreat on some level. How do you think about Ukraine and Russia in particular and, and, and the work they are doing in American politics? Yeah, I have to say first, I, I'm, I'm at least proud that at least most Republicans, uh, I think overall and most Republicans in Congress are pretty, very strong in support of Zelensky and what the Ukrainians are trying to do. I know Brett Stevens talked to you about this a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that that's one thing that should be pointed out. The second thing that should be pointed out is that it's funny how nothing ever goes away. And so the American first ideology, that's deep in American history, and, and it used to be in the Democratic Party, now it's in the Republican Party. And when Trump said America first for the first time, I thought, oh, that's terrible for him. That'll discredit him with everybody, because everybody knows America first didn't work out in the days before World War II. But turns out I was wrong. There are a lot of people who are genuinely America first. But I think the thing I've learned, which I didn't anticipate, is how signing on to Trump involves an aggressive amoralism. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're a liberal, you believe in, as you said earlier, the rules-based international order. And that is based on the idea that human beings have the ability to make cooperative arrangements and establish a set of moral norms that are good for everybody. And so thou shalt not invade your small neighbor. 
That's just a moral norm. And it's, it's not only good for the independence of peoples around the world, it happens to be good for building a stable world order. But Donald Trump's worldview is not that, that any moral order, any set of norms, any institutional set of norms is a cover for elites masking their oppressive power on everybody else. And therefore, the world is dog-eat-dog, live with it. Or as, you know, the ancient Athenians said, um, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. So suck it up. And so I think that is genuinely the mentality I encounter among Trump supporters, that Putin's strong, Ukraine was weak, what do you expect? And I think that aggressive amoralism is really a a crucial dividing line, not only in American politics, but in world politics, because there are other leaders like Xi Jinping who also believe that power is everything. And so where those of us who are liberal are trying to defend this liberal order, this set of norms, this belief that people can cooperate, and that it's not just airy-fairy, but cooperation is actually a tenacious, noble thing we do. And I think evolutionary psychology backs that up, but we have to restate moralism. And, and that's, you know, I've mentioned morality a lot recently in this conversation, and it sounds so pompous and self-righteous, I understand, but it's a real thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And moral, moral force, uh, the moral force that makes us cooperate one with another, the moral force that if you make an error and I'm not going to take advantage of it because I, I want to be a decent person, that's hard for us to talk about these days because we're sort of out of habit. But I, I do think that's the challenge, one of the challenges Trump throws up in our faces. Yeah, I mean, one of the most corrosive things he has done and, and the movement he has, has inspired has done is, is convey the sense that there is no such thing as moral high ground. Right, there's and any pretension that there is or might be, and that much less that one might occupy it, is just a a cover for a deeper hypocrisy. Right, it is just elite speak and selfishness and hand waving and virtue signaling, and there's there's there is just no there there. Right, there's it's impossible mm-hmm. to ever sincerely aspire to wisdom and compassion and any other you know higher virtue. Uh, individually or collectively, because it's all just uh, a fig leaf for selfishness and uh, getting what you can. Yeah, it's just, it's awful to see how difficult it has become to even use aspirational language in a political context without provoking a, a reflexive, cynical response. And see, when you when you talk about, it, to use this narrow case, when you talk about the the moral imperative of backing a democracy over the rampages of a of a, of an invading despotism, you know, or not uh, lionizing somebody like Putin who murders his political opponents and journalists, even in other countries. It, the fact that that just it falls on deaf ears, and it not only falls on deaf ears, it just there's this basic sense that. We should never have cared about any of those differences. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a reminder to me, I agree with you completely, that how recent the liberal enlightenment project, how recent it is. I mean, it, one of the things that did not exist in the ancient world was the notion of compassion, like the idea that you should feel sorry for a slave or if somebody was poor or who somebody was being, whose intestines were being ripped out of their guts. Uh, that sense that you should be humble before all that. Humility was like, what are you being humble for? Humility is for losers. <laughs> Humility mm-hmm. is for the downtrodden. Humility is not a virtue. 
But slowly over the centuries, we have a sense, no, humility is, to my mind, the primary virtue. Humility is an awareness of how little we know, and the humility is an, an awareness of how, how morally flawed we are, and therefore we need each other to set up norms. And that we have to rely on what, we may disagree on this, but I think there is a universal moral order. I think Martin Luther King got his great strength from a belief that mm. he, it wasn't just he who believed segregation was wrong, but segregation was wrong in all circumstances and all time. It's part of the universal moral order that slavery and segregation are wrong. And that, these beliefs were either revealed or slowly built up over centuries. And a lot of people accuse liberalism, Enlightenment liberalism, as being this amoral set of procedures. But it's not. It's, it's actually based on a moral vision of human dignity, that democracy, it's not, we're just, it's not just about voting, but it's an encountering another person who disagrees with you profoundly and being curious enough to see into the depths of that person about why they do. And so that curiosity is a show of respect. Uh, and that, that show of respect is something we built up as, as sort of the democratic ideal. And it's funny that I have a quote in one of my recent pieces from Jonathan Haidt, my friend who's a New York mm -hmm. NYU social psychologist, says moral communities are very hard to build and very easy to destroy. <laughs> and, and so that would be the threat the thing to worry about these days. I must say, I, I find that I am at a impasse in any political conversation with a Trump supporter when I can't get any acknowledgement that having a sitting president not commit to a peaceful transfer of power was a problem, right? A, a problem worth taking seriously, right? And the fact that we, the fact that Trump repeatedly declined to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, and we in fact didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. If I find myself in a conversation with a Trump supporter who won't give any assent to that point, it really just will just put a brave face on and, and seek to just kind of blow by it. it. It has no implication for anything, right? I find that I, I simply don't have the tools to continue having a conversation, I mean, they, we could have a conversation about something else, but it's like, there's, it's just clear that there's no way to converge politically. Can you, is there anything you can give me that can, <laughs> can, can get me to navigate that impasse? Can I, can you hope? Yeah. I, I would say my experience is multi-layered, I guess, on this one. You know, the, I do think there are certain people who, including people I'm close with who are Trump supporters, for whom there's no purchase. You, you can say X and they'll say no, Y. And they won't weigh whether X is true or not. They'll just say Y. And so they have a, a self-enclosed system of belief that once you accept their assumptions, you can't get in and out of. <laughs> but I would say one of the things I've learned is I've, I'm done generalizing about Trump supporters. I, mm. I think, you know, I was at, I ran into, this is years ago, a woman who um, was, if I remember this correctly, was a big Trump supporter. She was at a Trump rally. She was a lesbian biker who'd survived a plane crash, and converted to Sufi Islam. Mm. And so I was like, what stereotype do you fit into? And so I would say I meet a lot of people who are, that guy's a jackass, but he's my jackass. Or I'm a one-issue voter, I'm an abortion voter, I hate that guy, but mm. I think abortion is the primary issue in my, for me. I, I, I found it's hard now to generalize, even more complicated today to generalize about Trump supporters than it was in 2016, because I do think they've, 
bifurcated. There's there's certainly a hardcore of like twenty or thirty percent who are like cult members, but I find a lot of people who are sort of Trump friendly, Trump adjacent, Trump skeptical, would love to see another candidate, but they have persuaded themselves that four more years of Joe Biden would be the end of the republic. And so if they're gonna stick with the guy. So hmm. yeah, there there's if I can cheer you up, there is I find a wide variety of of kinds of Trump supporter these days. How do you think Biden has been doing and, and what do you think of the Democratic prospects going forward? I mean, I, you know, I've said repeatedly here that I really wish Biden were not running due to the, the obvious liability of his age. Perhaps there are other liabilities that, that are worth taking seriously at this point, but what's your sense of the Biden administration and or, or the, the Biden presidency and the Democratic side of things going into 2024? I'd say age obviously is a liability. I think his approvals would be like 10 or 15, 20 points higher if he was 60. Mm -hmm. But I'll say a couple of things about that. One is I do get the chance to be in a room with him from time to time. And the extent to which he is physically decayed or mentally decayed is vastly overstated in the media. Mm -hmm. I've been interviewing the guy since he was, you know, for 20 or 30 years. I almost wrote a book about him about 30 years ago and sort of regret not doing it. But so I've interviewed him over many decades, and um, he's like a pitcher who used to throw 92 and now throws 87. So it's a decline, but it's nothing, nothing tremendous. And second, in some ways, he's better because in those days, when I started interviewing him, he had to cram every fact in the universe into every answer. <laughs> so they were like mm. 45, 50 minute answers, and now he stays on point. And so I think that's positive. Third, I think he's basically pick the right fights. He sees this big fight between authoritarianism and democracy, and I think he's essentially right about that. He's pretty successful as a foreign policy president, I think. Second, I think he's identified the core gap in American society, which is the gap between, as I say, the coastal elites who are doing pretty well and a lot of other people who are not, and he is actively acting to repair that gap. So a Treasury Department report, which may be a little biased, but probably not too much, says that 90% of the money from uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act went to some of the poorest counties in this country. I mentioned earlier something which I think is really fascinating to me, that if you look at where the mega investments are in manufacturing plants, battery plants, chip plants, et cetera, et cetera, it's not in California anymore. It's not in New York anymore. It's in Iowa, mm. Arizona, Illinois, I mentioned Ohio. Uh, and so that's just, to me, tremendously good news and a sign that the market is healing, that there are all these hardworking people in these places who were deindustrialized and they're, they couldn't really, we couldn't take advantage of their talents. And now capitalism is saying, yeah, we're going to locate our plant in Columbus, Ohio, because there are a lot of hardworking people there. And I think Joe Biden has materially benefited frankly, a lot of Trump voters, the people who have been left behind. And so I, I have a much more positive view of the Biden administration than you would think from my political profile. Mm -hmm. But I think he's, he's basically doing the right thing. And the big thing he screwed up on, well, a couple things, obviously, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But the second one was there was too much stimulative spending. So we got too much inflation. But Joe Manchin saved him there. Joe mm -hmm. Manchin cut back the stimulus. And so it's, we had the inflation. But now the inflation is down, our unemployment is low, wages are rising, inequality is falling slightly. Compared to Europe, our economy looks good. Compared to China, it looks fantastic. And so 
I think the age thing and the moral trauma of the last six years keep his approvals low, and I have no confidence he'll win re-election. Mm. But I have to say, I think he's been a pretty good president. What, if anything, has come spilling out of Hunter Biden's laptop that you think we should all take seriously? I guess I have to say it's more serious than I thought it was. Mm. I think there, he was trying to, obviously, trying to peddle influence. Whether he actually successfully peddled influence is an open question to me. I have to say, I'm not a, a big scandal guy. Like Since Watergate, we've tried to end every administration through some magic scandal that'll finish them off. And, you know, I was at the Wall Street Journal. We, hopefully nobody will remember this, but we were all hyped up about a scandal called Whitewater in the mm-hmm. Bill Clinton years and whether where people were running drugs at Amina Airport, et cetera, et cetera. I, I never could get into that. I couldn't get into Monica Lewinsky. I can't get into Hunter Biden. I, I couldn't even get into Ron Contrite. Scandal is to be punished and condemned, but I'd rather we practiced our politics in some other way than thinking we can destroy somebody through scandal. What do you think would, as you, you, you expressed a, um, a real concern that Biden may not win re-election if it's Biden versus Trump? I don't know where the polls are at now. I think, it's, I think they're more or less at parity. I hear many people express rather confidently the opposite opinion that basically Trump got his last possible voter last time around and still didn't win. What's the basis of your concern? Is it the age thing or is it something else? Yeah. Well, both parties are utterly convinced their guy can't possibly lose to that other guy. He's so so -hmm. pathetic. But if you think Trump got his last possible voter in 2016 or 2020, I really fervently disagree with that. Mm. I think all all you have to do is take a... Even in 2020, uh, Hispanic men in particular were pretty democratic and now they're not. And so there's just a, a rise in the working class, not only working class support for Donald Trump, and there is a widespread perception, I think, against all the facts that Trump is a better economic steward than Biden. Mm. And then we could have a recession, Biden could stumble, um, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm astonished that Trump is, is so strong that he's really come back, but, but he has. And so I, I would not have any confidence that Donald Trump is going to lose this. And then the only other thing to say about the Democrats is if Biden goes and if this age really becomes disqualifying, who? <laughs> it's, not, it's not an easy question. Who, if not Biden, who? And the natural person would be Kamala Harris, who has her own electoral challenges. Mm-hmm. So it's the Democrats have gotten themselves into a bit of a bind because you have an ailing president and no obvious alternative. Who do you think the best candidate would be on the Democratic side? You know, I'm, I'm so far out. You know, I, I like um, uh, Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado. Uh, I think a lot of governors are good. The guy in Pennsylvania, I mean, you know, I, I, you, I could pick 800 people, but none of them have obvious electoral shoe-in effect. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg, I, I'd be extremely happy with a Pete judge administration, but I have my doubts about electoral viability. So, yeah. Are there any other Republican candidates who you would... Um not mind voting for at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, and I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, I haven't voted for Republicans since 2004, so it's been mm-hmm. a little while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, there are two ways to answer that. The one is, who would I like? <laughs> and then I, I guess I would pick uh, Mitch Daniels, the former governor of Indiana who was running Purdue University for a little while. But I have to pick someone who pl- could actually plausibly get elected in this Republican Party. 
And so I was hoping Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, would run. But of the field right now, I wrote a piece recently saying it looks to me like Nikki Haley is the best plausible alternative. She's not everything that I would ask for, but she has a force of character and strength that can stand up to Trump in mm. a way that, say, Tim Scott doesn't. So if I were like some big money bags guy and a Republican donor, I'd probably be saying, okay, it's a long shot, but we're going to give Nikki Haley her chance. How do you um, think we should untangle the problem that you pointed to in your, your essay, and uh, which we've remarked upon in passing here, of meritocracy and, I guess, uh, you could entangle with that the enduring problem of economic in- inequality. I mean, whatever the the upswing in our economy might be, it, is, it certainly is redounding to the advantage of of the top ten percent or one percent or zero point one percent more than anyone else. I mean, our, our um, onshoring of our supply chain, probably notwithstanding. I, mean, I think in your piece, I'm wondering if this has changed importantly in the last three years. But in your piece, you you cited a rather alarming economic fact that the baby boomers, uh, when they hit the median age of 35, their generation owned 21% of the nation's wealth. And uh, at that po- at the point you, you were writing, for millennials who are actually, they're going to hit, hit an average of 35, more or less about now, I think, they own just 3% of the nation's wealth. Uh, I can't imagine that has corrected all that much in the, in the meantime. Um, how do you think about meritocracy and inequality, inequality with respect to wealth, but I guess you could broaden it to with respect to everything we care about, uh, health outcomes, education, etc. What should we do about all that? Yeah. Well, I guess first, I do think the economic situation has shifted to the benefit of the working class. So working class wages really are up. Inequality mm-hmm. really is dis- declining, on, though only slightly. The unemployment rate is super low. People are coming back in the labor force. So if populism was simply born out of economic discontent, I think a lot of that discontent has been eased. But now we see how much of the populism is strictly cultural. Mm-hmm. The second thing on the millennials, I wrote that, and that was the, the going wisdom of the day. Since then, and I really don't know how to square this, Gene Twenge and others have, have produced data suggesting that millennials are actually not doing worse than boomers, that they make about $9,000 more per year at the same age, that their home ownership mm. rates are roughly similar. And so I don't, I don't quite know how to square these various data points, but it's more complicated. Uh, and then the thing to say, I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the meritocracy. And so the meritocracy is a history of redefinition of the word merit. And so in the, 19, in the 1890s, if you wanted to rise in the meritocracy, you had to be a wasp elite who, who stressed your Teddy Roosevelt-style manly character and that kind of thing. And then in the 1950s, you probably wanted to be a wasp male who stressed clubability. You could get into the Princeton Eating Club. Then, as I mentioned, we shifted the definition of meritocracy to basically IQ and the ability to get good grades in high school. I think our definition of merit is about to undergo another massive shift, though in a way I don't know where it's going to go. But I say that for three reasons. One, AI. Hmm. We, d- we define intelligence in a certain way. But if what if large, many acres of that definition are swallowed up in AI and the LLMs are doing things that we count as intelligent, then we're going to have to regurgitate and think, what are humans good at the machines can't do? 
And to me, we're going to have to redefine merit around those skills that will not be replaceable by chat GPT, et cetera. I think massage therapists are about to be at the top of the heap. (laughs) I'm I'm hopeful, but, uh, you know, the AI has been around for language translation for a long time. We still need language translators, so there's Mm -hmm. something they're doing right. The second thing is the end of affirmative action. So, at least in theory, elite universities have to redefine what they're, how they're going to admit their classes. And finally, just the, the rise of populism. I think we've seen that we can't have, live in a society where the educated elite form an inherited Brahmin class. And so, I really, I think AI is the most important of those things. And so, we can create a definition of merit in this society that encompasses far more people than those who happen to be smart at age 15. Uh, we can include courage or steadfastness, creativity, innovation, uh, metacognition, the ability to think about your own presuppositions, which is totally unrelated to IQ. Uh, mm. And so there, there are lots of other mental qualities that IQ doesn't pick up and that which may become more important as AI can do everything that an algorithm can do. Well, what do you, how do you think about our information landscape at this point, distrust in media, merited or otherwise, and the the role that that social media is playing in balkanizing our conversation. I mean, one thing that seems to have happened in recent years is that the the internet has, and and social media in particular, have enabled an echo chamber effect that I I think it was probably always true of American society or any any other society that it was possible to be in in an echo chamber, but now it it seems to have made it possible to stay there more or less forever and never. I mean, you, you, there's, there's just there's always enough confirmation of your fantasies, and there there's basically all possible friction has been removed. I mean, not even the friction engendered by having to meet you know, the disreputable purveyors of nonsense in real life, right? So I have to think that in a former age of the earth, if you had had to physically show up at the conference for crazy people, you would recognize the craziness of many of these people. I mean, you'd have to see how they were dressed and how they were presenting neurologically. Uh, you'd have to see their ages, you know. So if, if, the, if the documentary you know, on YouTube that convinced you that 9-11 was an inside job it was made by a a seventeen year old in his mother's basement, the proverbial basement. You you would ha- you would have to recognize that if you had to meet this person uh, in the flesh. But now the the internet is such that none of that ever need happen, and so you can just stay down your rabbit hole more or less forever. For me, that's what explains the possibility of something like QAnon, right, where you have people sincerely claiming to believe, or with apparent sincerity, claiming to believe that. The world is being run by cannibals uh, or child raping cannibals, and among those cannibals are people like Tom Hanks and and Michelle Obama. What is social media doing to us, and what what do you think? How do you think we're going going to course correct, if at all, in the presence of AI or any other change you're seeing in media? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, I can testify to what you're talking about personally. Like, so I work at the New York Times, the Atlantic, and the PBS mostly. And so when I'm at a Democratic National Convention every four years and I'm walking through the floor, lots of people know me and they want to say hi and we have a nice time together. And then when you take me over to the Republican Convention, 
I might as well be in the witness protection program. There's nobody <laughs> who knows who I am. I'm completely anonymous. So I, I'm that's hilarious. so far outside their realm of anybody they encounter. Uh, and so that's, to me, is the example of the different media spheres. Hmm. I think one of the things that has cheered me up in the last several years has been the rise of people really wanting to defend old-fashioned pluralism and liberalism and a, a network of institutions that have been set up of mutually supporting people who like, well, we like having a debate. And so I would include you and your podcast in that. I would c include like on Substack, there's a guy, Matt Iglesias, who I used to really mm -hmm. disagree with, but now I really appreciate he's counterintuitive. There's an economist named Noah Smith who's there on Substack, who I think is phenomenal. There's a place called Persuasion run by a guy named Yasha Monk. Yeah. Um, there's Barry Weiss's new press thing. Um, yeah, and free, so, free press, yeah. Free press. Um, and so I think there's, uh, we used to talk about the dark web, I guess, and you wouldn't know about that, but mm. uh, now we have the light web, <laughs> the, the, the people who like wanted not only to defend the liberal order, but just want to do it and want to have discussions and want to have arguments. And I, I think the populist took a, had a, a lead uh, in our public culture, but now we're facing real opposition from not only from the left, but from people who want to who are who are a little heterodox in their opinion, or at least value heterodoxy. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm just to close with AI. I'm I've been working on a piece for seven or eight months on AI. I, I decided early on I'd spend three or four hours a day on it, which I do. Nice. And I haven't been able to make up my mind. <laughs> I haven't written mm -hmm. anything practically because mm -hmm. there's Eliezer, the doomsters over here. Then there's Jan LeCun, who's way more optimistic over here. There's Gary Marcus, a guy who has much more gimlet eye view gimlet eyed views of what AI can achieve and Mustafa Suleiman, who, who you had on. Mm. And there are all these very smart people on all sides of the issues. I'm very frustrated that I can't make up my mind, but I'm kind of enjoying it. It's, it's nice to be in a world where I don't know. I, I don't know if it's going to go good or bad and this way or that. It's just pleasurable to be like looking things over and trying to figure it out. How do you perceive the contrarian turn many people have taken? I mean, you just sung the praises of heterodoxy in media, and you mentioned a few people who I also admire, but there are people who've taken this heterodox turn, you know, one or two clicks too far, and there's this, like once again, a kind of, a, it's a kind of doom spiral. There's a sort of self-confirming, self-intensifying positive feedback uh, that, that one can notice, and, and, and it's it has to do with the business model of newsletters and podcasts and alternative media and this phenomenon that many of us have remarked about under the guise of audience capture. But there are people who have just gone all in on what I've increasingly begun to think of as a almost a new religion of contrarianism and, hmm. and a kind of anti-establishment thinking where basically the institutions are always wrong, always lying, always hypocritical and you have to quote do your own research about everything and um expertise is dead really i mean there's just we we have swung out of a cult of expertise into a cult of do your own research and you know so i'm thinking of people like uh, i don't know matt taibbi who you know at one point seemed to me to be a pretty sober voice on the left and now has taken a you know, a contrarian turn, and it's all 
conspiracy all the time. And there are many other people, you know, following in his wake or, you know, joined at the hip with him who have, have less purchase in traditional journalism. But they, you know, these are academics or former academics who are now constantly preaching to a choir of vaccine skeptical hysterics on, on some level. And, you know, to take one variable among several, how, how do you view contrarianism in media and social media now? And what should we do or say about it? Yeah. Yeah. I used to think Taibi was like bitter left. Then there was about a month or two where I thought, oh, he agrees with me. Mm. And now he's yeah. spun too far right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, I, I, the story that comes to mind is like I got out of college in 1983 and went to work for National Review in probably, I don't know, 86 or somewhere in the mid 80s. And around that time, two other people who I thought at the time I agreed with got out of college named Laura Ingram and Dinesh mm-hmm. D'Souza. It's quite a graduating class. Yeah. And they got, I left Chicago, a very noble institution. They came, uh-huh. they came out of Dartmouth, a noble institution. But mm. what the difference was that me and my friends were pro-conservative and they and their friends were anti-left. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't define themselves by the positive philosophy they believed in, but on sticking it to the man and shocking the bourgeoisie. And so they were anti, and their whole belief system was based on that hostility, which is partly born out of insecurity, partly there's always an audience that wants to feel smarter than the mainstream. And so if you believe in the conspiracy, that puts you in the heroic pose of knowing things that the suckers don't know. Mm -hmm. And so it's psychologically extremely comforting to be Matt Taibbi or to side up to him or some of the other people who say crazy things about vaccines or, and, or smoking. Um, there's a former New York Times reporter's name, I'm now forgetting, who goes off on that kind of stuff. But, you know, I guess I'm here to tell you, as someone who really does know the institutions of society reasonably well, I guess that makes me an elitist. Hmm. But when I get invited to sit in a room at in a place like HUD, the Housing and Urban Development, or in the Justice Department, I think you'd be shocked. People would be shocked, but these are good people trying to do decent jobs. They're way more qualified than you would imagine just by looking at their income. They're, most people do this for the right reasons. Hmm. And to me, a lot of this conspiracy falls apart. It, it draws from an inability to accept, again, to get back to that phrase, epistemological modesty. Of course, we don't know a lot. Of course, Tony Fauci didn't know everything about COVID. We never know a lot. Uh, we are all stumbling in the dark, even the experts. The experts just can see six inches further than the rest of us. And so I think there's this, and again, you mentioned this earlier about how hard it is to argue against amoralism. It's super hard to argue against that level of cynicism mm. and say, no, that they really do have your best intentions in mind. Uh, they're just dealing with a, f- a very complicated pandemic and in a fluid situation. But, you know, the, I always ascribe to stupidity things that could be ascribed to malevolence, and, yeah. and so uh, other people don't. Yeah, that, that is a crucial difference, and it, it is just baked into the, the recipe for conspiracy thinking to take the, the opposite path there. I mean, basically uh, ascribing you know, sinister motives to a vast percentage of people, and also competence where, 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 where we have obvious evidence of incompetence, you're ascribing, you know, competence and malevolence 
and it's it's just far less likely in in almost every case that that's what's actually happening behind the scenes. I guess on on the point of COVID, I one thing I frequently encounter in people who are on the other side of this particular issue. I mean, the, the people who think that uh, just a it will it will sound cartoonish, but there are people who really do fit the silhouette of this apparent straw man. Uh, the p- people who think that the pandemic and our response to it was all a pretext to um, achieve something like Orwellian control of democratic societies. You know, everything was sinister all you know all the way down. You know, you know, lockdowns and vaccines and all the rest, masks. Needless to say, and you know, the ratchet has was just turning in the direction of social control. And uh, they, they, none of these people ever noticed that those controls have been relaxed and we are no longer locked down and schools are open, etc. But um, what I often hear from people who find any of that account compelling, uh, needless to say, these people are terrified of vaccines and not especially terrified of COVID itself, for the most part. What I often hear is a demand for an apology. What they imagine would satisfy them is some kind of tearful mea culpa on the part of the elites that we got this disastrously wrong, right? Like the advocating for school closures was an obscene error that we should now apologize for. Now, it's, it's not enough to acknowledge that the school closures, while rational in the beginning, uh, eventually became irrational and, and continued for far too long. Uh, it's not enough to acknowledge that, you know, closing the beaches in those first months never made any sense and was, you know, just kind of indefensible, not even just in hindsight, but almost certainly at the time. Uh, needless to say, simultaneously closing the beaches and then being caught at French Laundry at a fundraiser was never a good look for uh, the governor of California. And, and uh, that was, you know, acknowledged in the very hour uh, it was revealed. But people imagine that, that they, they want something like a public apology from everyone, you know, from everyone, you know, Fauci and Biden on down, uh, and something like a Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission to enshrine these apologies uh, in the public record. And needless to say, we, you know, even if there were apologies forthcoming, we wouldn't agree about the errors that had been made, right? Because the, many of these people think that, you know, the mRNA vaccines are killing people by the, the thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions. Uh, and that you know, concealing the life-saving advantages of ivermectin is you know, if the vaccines weren't killing them, you know, the secrecy about ivermectin killed killed many millions of others. So nailing down the the errors that were made would be difficult, if not impossible. But there's this incessant demand I encounter for an apology. There are many, many people contact me wanting me to apologize for everything I thought I believed about COVID three years ago, and and you know, at every month thereafter. And I wonder what you make of that. It's almost like, a, you know, reparations. It's achieved something like the status of reparations for slavery in a, in a certain community. What could we apologize for? I mean, presumably you don't think we steered the pandemic perfectly and we made, and, and our institutions made some obvious pratfalls. What could we apologize for and how and what political utility might it have? Yeah, well, I go back to, I, I was talking earlier, if you remember, about the politics of recognition. 
Mm. And that's, that's not like how we're going to divide up the spoils or how we're going to compromise on this or that issue. It's, I want to be superior. I need to establish my superiority. And you need to recognize my superiority. And you need to recognize my dignity. And you need to accept my narrative. And that's just not sensible politics. I, you know, I used to cover the Middle East. And I got bored with it because I was paying attention to which peace plan should the yellow, the new green line go between this Palestinian town or that Palestinian town. And it finally occurred to me is that's not what this is about. This is about two mm. peoples who are locked in conflict who want the other to accept their narrative. And that is not going to happen. <laughs> and, and so why should I cover an event that's not going to be really addressed in my lifetime? And mm. I used to say, when we launched the war in Iraq, we tried to democratize the Middle East, but we ended up Middle Easternizing our democracy. <laughs> and, and so we have a lot of people who want, who think politics is where they can go for ultimate validation, and that their side will be proved right in some end of history apocalypse. Uh, the, the book of Revelation will come true, and one side will be proved right, and one side will be proved wrong. But in politics, it's, it's just never over. And so when I look back on COVID, you know, of course, I think there are things done wrong. I'm, I agree with you a thousand percent that closing the schools in the beginning was the right thing. And then it was clearly the wrong thing. And we still kept them closed. Uh, but, you know, I was looking back at some stories on Sweden and they took this non-compulsory lockdown position. And lo and behold, their death rates, their excess death rates are not higher than anybody else's. In fact, they're a little lower. Mm. And so you know, these are complicated issues. Should, how do you deal with it? You're doing the best you can. You're, you're as Clausewitz said about war, you're boring through hard boards and you're stumbling in the dark. And I think Fauci, Francis Collins, uh, I think there are, you know, I wouldn't say everybody, I would give them the benefit of that. They were doing the best they can. I think the CDC was screwed up in massive ways, but I think most people in office were more than doing the best they can. And I know a little about what Fauci and Collins and some of the pressures they were under, and they heroically held up the science under tremendous beratement and assaults from within the administration from without. And so, you know, I give them a lot of credit, and asking certainty of leaders or a surgeon or anybody is just asking what humans are not able to provide. Although some of this breaks down when you, when you look at how speculation about the origins of COVID, i.e. The, the lab leak hypothesis, were demonized early on and how, um, you know, I, I haven't followed it uh, of late, but I, no doubt there are theories, conspiracy, and otherwise about Fauci's culpability for some of that gain-of-function research in Wuhan that might have given us this pandemic. So I mean, obviously, the the it's the origin of the pa the pandemic is not yet known, but it is it's certainly a plausible hypothesis that a lab leak is is the answer. And the fact that we have that footage of Fauci testifying before Congress, you know, and, and seemingly playing Cirque du Soleil level games of uh, with uh, contorting the language in dialogue with Rand Paul, so as not to acknowledge that we were ever funding anything like gain-of-function gain of research, um, that, that all seems nefarious from the point of view of, you know, again, people who are looking for the conspiratorial angle on everything. I mean, what, what if anything, do you think is worth doing a 
post-mortem on there. Yeah. I, I, I admit that it does lead to a lot of uncertainty, what we know now. I, and also, one always has to be suspicious of those, of those of us with cultural power using that power to shut down even the entertaining of alternate views. So, I would cons- the lab leak theory is one of those where that happened. I would, th- I would think actually Twitter deciding to shut down anybody who talked about the Hunter Biden laptop mm. was, that was another example where people use cultural power to silence views. But here, here's a question. I mean, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. So you're Fauci. You're um, in charge of some sort of public response to COVID. Do you try to say, what are the few simple direct things I can say? Or do you, is your communication strategy one of, well, it's super complicated. I have a lot of uncertainties. I should just tell the American people, it's complicated. I have a lot of uncertainties. And as a public health official, I can sort of argue it both ways. I don't know yeah. what you think. That there must be some tendency to say, okay, I'm just going to simplify it so we can do something actionable. Yeah. I think much of this is explained by the more or less impossible task of trying to find the clearest way of messaging in an information environment that was already shattered by political partisanship and and paranoia, right? So when you have a president who's saying that COVID's not even a thing, we've got 15 cases and they're all going to go away, it's going to become a cold, and then you have a real risk that the healthcare system is going to collapse if we don't do something, it's obviously tempting to dumb it all down and not get distracted and not concede any scientific uncertainty when scientific uncertainty is is obviously the, the order of the day. And then, then the penalty you pay for being wrong or, or revising your opinion on the utility of mask wearing or anything else, the penalty is, is devastating politically. Uh, and then any noble lie obviously blows up in your face. And so there were, there were a few noble, you know, what purported to be noble lies in the beginning, like, you know, masks don't work in an effort to protect uh, the, the PPE that was soon going to be unavailable even to frontline workers. So it's just, yeah, it was a mess. But I just, I, I think there's some, again, it got, it's sort of analogous to the Hunter Biden situation. Like I, all of that looks spectacularly corrupt to me now, but I find that I still don't care because Trump is a candidate, right? Like, I, like I, I, in a perfect world, I'd be more than happy for somebody to win a Pulitzer discrediting Joe Biden and his presidency because we've done all the work necessary to see how tainted he is by proximity to his dysregulated son. But in a world where we need to prevent Trump from being president again, I, I just find that I just don't have the interest to do that work or to see, or to see the work done by anybody else. It's just a question of competing bad outcomes, right? It's like, well, one is so much worse to me that it's just, you have to kind of prioritize, you have to triage your epistemological efforts. And I, I think it's the same thing during that pandemic. You know, it's just, we, we see Italy falling off a cliff. It's time to give a simple message. And that, that accounts for perhaps not everything, but it, it accounts for most of the, the missteps. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I guess I just wish we could get used to the idea that we live in a fog of ignorance and that we stumble forward as best we can. That and that's true of COVID policy. It's a, how much federal spending can you do, and how much stimulative spending can you do without ushering in inflation? Well, that's an open question. It's it's mm. it's hard exactly to know. Or you're going to marry someone. What's this person going to be like in five years? Well, it's hard to know. Uh, and so I wish we could just get used to the idea that. Life is a series of iterations, 
as you screw up in one way or another and you try to make the best of what you have. And I will say, just to go back to something you said, one of the problems of our debate, our public debate in general, is the unwill- the hard, how hard it is to change one's mind or, or even to apologize. Like I, I was a big supporter of the war in Iraq. That was clearly the wrong thing to do. And I wrote a bunch of columns trying to figure out why I got it wrong. And what I noticed was that my friends hated me for writing these columns who were on my side. Hmm. And then the people who were on the other side, they didn't see this as, oh, he's finally wisened up. It was like, he's admitted his own weakness. Let's pounce. Yeah. And say they doubled down. And so I don't have to run for re-election, but if I were a politician, I would never admit error because <laughs> it does you no good either way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a, an especially depressing piece of social psychology, I guess. It's just that apologies are so often not only ineffectual, but they, they redound to your disadvantage. But um, I think they're important nonetheless. Perhaps we can close on, on this point because it, it wasn't something I thought I would talk to you about, but it, it is something that I think I have changed my mind about, despite not uh, really thinking all that much in, in, in public about it of late. I mean, I, I, wasn't really, I wasn't a supporter of the war in Iraq per se, although I was open-minded about it to some degree. I mean, it always, it always seemed like a dangerous distraction from the war in Afghanistan, which I was a supporter of. But when you, you mention our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, it was disastrous in how it was accomplished. Uh, I'm not sure the uh, the fact of our withdrawal was necessarily disaster. I mean, at some point we had to get out of there, but the whole policy of invading, fighting our ideological enemies there to the extent that we did, and then seeking to build a nation and a democracy that, in some ways, shared our values, all of that seems, in retrospect like such an abject failure and such a tragic one given all of the people in those countries who pin their hopes on our succeeding, right? I mean, all of the girls who were busy getting educated, all of the, the aspiring secularists and, and liberals who were, who were trying to build uh, a civil society in places like Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and we abandoned them, you know, I mean, just the, the, the in the most appalling cases where, you know, we abandon the people whose lives are now on the line or, you know, certainly, or, or some of them, no doubt, lost in the interim because they were our translators or they worked, worked alongside our troops and our, our uh, nation builders. All of that is just, it's so depressing, but I guess the, the net result for me is to be f- uh, strangely, uh, it echoes to some degree the isolationism and America firstness of many of the people we've spoken critically of uh, so far. I guess I'm much more skeptical about our ability to solve the world's problems in those ways. In uh, no longer thinking what you thought at the time of our going into Iraq, just how fully have, has your view of our power to build nations and uh, accomplish anything like we accomplished in. I mean, again, hold this up in comparison with the uh, what happened after World War II. I mean, it just it seems unimaginable to me that we could have a success like the rebuilding of Germany and Japan. I mean, just I mean, when you look at you, when you look at what we did to those countries, and the fact that we successfully helped them rebuild and then found them to be durable allies. 
it, it almost seems like a miracle. Uh, so what's your current view of what we should aspire to on, on the global stage in that regard? Yeah, well, I've, I'm obviously way more skeptical than I was. But, you know, I, I, as I said, I was in Europe in the 1990s, and I, I saw Ukraine, the, the revolution in Ukraine, and now we see what fervent Democrats the Ukrainians are, and, and they were, you could have said, oh, they're under th- communism, they're just used to being authoritarian, they'll never be Democrats, but those people are Democrats down to the bone. Mm. Poland now, I'm not a big fan of the government of Poland, but it's prosperous society. I was just in Prague a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was helped, liberated, and now is a wonderful, healthy society, thanks in part to Western and American power. I was in South Africa when uh, apartheid ended, and I had real foreboding. There was this civil war between the ANC and Nkatha. There was riots. It was violence. There was crime. And not only, but largely because Nelson Mandela was the kind of incredible man he was, that society made, was able to make the transition and become, you know, a troubled society like any of us, but a normal society where young men and women can dream things. Uh, and so I, I still have faith in our ideas and our ability to pro- project those ideas. I'm obviously a lot more skeptical that we can export those ideas under the, <laughs> the barrel of a gun hmm. than I used to be. I, I wrote a column before the invasion of Iraq. My heroes are, are Michael o- Michael Oakeshott is a British conservative philosopher, and Edmund mm. Burke, who I mentioned. And I was like interrogating myself through them. What would they think of this? And Burke and Oakeshott would definitely have had nothing to do with the invasion of Iraq. They would have been like, you're walking into a society you know nothing about, and it's super complicated, and you think you can transform it? Good luck with that. And so I basically wrote that, and then I had three or four lame paragraphs at the end saying, nevertheless, I'm for it, but I should have stuck with my instincts. Mm-hmm. that the conservative instincts were the right ones, that we, we can sh- adjust things, but we can't really transform society out of our, our skulls. Is the issue cultural distance there? Because when I, if I try to draw some instruction from the examples of Germany and Japan, I think you, you could certainly argue that Germany was you know, as, as antagonistic as they were as enemies during World War II. They were much closer to us culturally. But you know, Japan is an example that is it is so, it's somewhat like it's obviously pointed in a different direction. I don't know how I don't know where to place it on the landscape of cultural difference, but it's pretty. It was pretty far from us. Yeah, I don't know if analogously as far as as Afghanistan or Iraq, but I don't see why we should have been confident that we could make an ally of Japan after Hiroshima and Nagasaki by meddling there. So, um, what what, what lesson do you draw? I mean, how, what, what instruction? would you draw from this such such that you could think about our next adventure or misadventure on the world stage? Yeah. My friend Evan Thomas has a new book about Japan in the days before and after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And one of the points he leaves at least me with is that we had to drop those bombs. Those people were willing to fight to the last person uh, and they were willing to all die uh, at least many of the people in Japanese society were willing to all die to uphold the holy cause. And so that, that was a pretty alien culture. Mm. And the fact that that was able to turn into a democracy, I think has to do with some good leadership from America, but probably a lot of great leadership from Japanese people who decided, I want to change. I want to change my culture completely. And the Germans were, you know, were the high culture society of 19th century Europe and then turned into really barbarian society into the Nazis, and then 
radically flipped. So culture can change. I think what Japan and Germany had was a tradition of civil society, a tradition that that the rule of law was not going to be determined by religious figures. A lot of things that we now know are the thick makings of democracy that maybe we thought could be imposed from above. But if you remember, in, in the late 90s, and this is why I was wrong, all sorts of unlikely things were happening. <laughs> and they were all good. <laughs> and so we thought if it can happen in Central Europe, who are we to say it can't happen in the Middle East? And I still, have, I still think it's a noble dream to think there's going to be democracy someday in the Middle East. And I still celebrate all those people that Freedom House and all the other organizations celebrate. The, hmm. the people who are in jail now in Egypt and uh, Libya and Iran and the people who are marching in those places, their, their courage strikes me as every bit as heroic as the courage of the Ukrainians. Hmm. Well, David, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks again for taking the time. And um, I feel uh, better educated and uh, I think a, a tad more optimistic for having spent okay. nearly two hours with you. So <laughs> thank you for that. I, I am known as the hopeless optimist at the New York Times. So but it's, it's genuinely an honor. As I say, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and to have my voice among the many other really smart people you've had on the show is, is an honor.